Okay, y'all, we have a little bit of a twist today. Uh, so I got a call from my, my good friend, Jared Hill. Uh, you might know him. He's the one who discovered first that Melania was totally plagiarizing Michelle uh, uh, four years ago uh, or five years ago or 29 years ago. I really don't remember uh, when the last election was because it, it just felt like a lifetime. But anyway, he was the one on Twitter who broke the news. He's also a fantastic uh, journalist and host of the fabulous podcast, Fanti. Um, anyway, so Jared called me up and said, hey, you know what's, I, do you ever let anybody interview you? You've got a movie coming out. Um, you know, as a friend of mine, he knows that this year has been a crazy one for me. And he suggested, yo, let me interview you, Justin. One of the amazing things about Dear White People is that I have a writer's room and I get to populate that writer's room with people who have the actual lived experiences of my characters. Uh, you know, with bad hair, I'm writing a woman. That frightened me because even though I've always written for women and I feel like queer men, queer black men especially, have a special connection to uh, black women and writing for black women, I just was really, I was, I was just really, you know, wanting to get it right and not fuck it up or not miss things or not have things in my blind spots. Now, if you listen to the podcast, you know I can talk, so I could not turn Jared down on this offer. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to let Jared take it from here. Stay tuned for an all-new Don't At Me with Jared. Who does your hair? No one? Me? Aren't you tired of it? All the stares you get. That girl is You want to be one of my girls? Yes. All the way from India? Forget about where it's from. Let's focus on where it's going. You're not tender headed, are you? <laughs> I'll be fine. <laughs> Clients wear this stuff is magic. All right, Culture Machines, what's up? Usually on this show, um, I am talking to people that I'm curious about, asking them questions. Uh, but this time, uh, Jared Hill, who is actually. I think in some ways you inspired me to kind of get into the podcasting thing because I did your show a while ago and acted a fool on it. And then I guess I just couldn't get enough. You were always one of my favorite guests to have on the show. Um, <laughs> like we always had so much fun with you. I remember you making up songs on our show. Like it was a lot of yeah, fun. Yeah, I remember I our, the songs. Our hot topic sound was hot you topics. talking. Yes, it was a lot. We had a lot of fun on that show. It always felt weird interviewing myself or just monologuing. Mm. So this actually is a really I, I I said yes because not only do I think you're such a great um, interviewer, Jarrett, but uh, it, it would be great to talk about. I guess my movie <laughs> on my show. That's a great idea. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to do this because you know I've had conversations about what the experience of making bad hair has been like yeah. in the midst of doing Dear White People and a pandemic and Sundance and, you know, wanting to change things and all that kind of stuff. So I thought right. there was a really great opportunity to talk to you about what your experience was. Please. Oh, I love your hair too. It's really good. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it, I'm getting used to it being long enough to move now. Enjoy. It's just started doing I, that in the last few I weeks. Can't, so. I can't ever join, <laughs> join you anymore. It's done. It's done. I tried. Well, it's okay. It's okay. What I, you have is working for you. I'm, I'm embracing it. It's fine. <laughs> okay. So Justin, yes. um, I feel like before we jump into bad hair and and like its inspiration and, and what you were looking to accomplish with it, talk to me about where you are right now. Um, mm. It's obviously we're running into an election. It's the middle of October. Um, bad hair is getting ready to come out. Talk to me about where you are emotionally. My nervous system is fucked up. Like it is. <laughs> I'm a hot mess. But I also like I feel I'm really excited. Um, I'm enjoying the process more than I was at the start of the year. And, um, you know, it's just a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot to go from quarantine to shooting. We just started shooting Dear White People season four. And um, similarly to when I was shooting Dear White People season three, that hair is happening at the same time. So it's just a lot of uh activity and extroversion for someone like me who has absolutely been loving quarantine life like loving staying in bed uh you know to unspeakable <laughs> hours and uh sort of never having to wear pants and you know 
literally like work is me coming to this computer and talking for a few hours. I mean, you know, it, it's so my body is like adjusting to it. OK, so, Justin, when you were working on Bad Hair, I remember coming to set and you were you had a writer's room for Dear White People season three in the same building so that you could go between the film and the show. Talk to me about what that process was like as you were kind of, you know, executing Bad Hair. Man, that was crazy. <laughs> it, was it seemed crazy. crazy. It was it was one of those things, too, where like I was. In my mind, you know, the thing the thing that you find out immediately in this industry is that just nothing happens on any kind of reliable, predictable timetable. Um, but, you know, I you know, we had certain contractual requirements for Dear White People. It had to be shot within a certain amount of time, um, you know, which we found out as we were trying to schedule the movie and the movie. You know, I was supposed to shoot it in the summer and da, da, da. basically nothing that was planned happened. And. I was in a scenario where I had to start that writer's room while I was still shooting the movie. And so, um, you know, I asked uh, Yvette Lee Bowser, who uh, was co-show running that season, you know, to keep the room running in the building. And I would just kind of dash and answer questions. And, you know, it, I, it went kind of OK. It, I, I can't okay. say it was perfectly smooth. It was it was really hectic. You know, the movie itself was is an independent film. Um, we're working with a limited budget, limited schedule. Uh, we're shooting on film. Uh, you know, it's obviously a very strange movie with a lot of elements and stuff. So that by itself was just a war I had never mm -hmm. fought before. And then doing the show, which is always difficult and is always the it's the it's the beast that I knew. But yet being so distant from the process, that just took a lot of getting used to for everybody because I'm I'm super hands on usually with the show. And, you know, there was this sense of like, where, where'd daddy go? <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I still care about the show and I still want to, but I'm, I'm just one person. I only have so much energy. Um, so it was a lot of sleepless nights. Honestly, it was a lot of just running on fumes. Uh, and then, a, and, and we had just a little bit of overlap. There was time after I finished shooting the movie to kind of reset, rejoin the, the dear white people writers room, um, and, and kind of play, you know, catch up a little bit. I didn't get to direct as much that season, but, um, you know, I wanted to at least be there to, to mold what that season would be as much as I could. Got you. That's one of the interesting things to me about this movie is that is knowing where you were when you were making it. And then I guess the last thing about the show before we start really getting into the movie is I'm sure that people are listening and want to know, like, what is the status of Dear White People right now? Where are you guys in the process? So we, we just we had something called Day Zero, which is um, it's like a first day of shooting, but it was a, it was shortened. Although t try to tell my body that. I mean, I really feel like I just climbed Mount Everest. I was on set for half a day, but whatever. Um, this was yesterday? This was yesterday, yeah. Okay. And so okay. we shot some scenes, uh, but really it was to kind of get everybody a chance to try out shooting under, you know, very, very strict and different COVID protocols. Uh, there's gotcha. a lot of, of, of rapid testing and uh, PPE equipment and zones and quarantine time overlaps, and it's a very like complicated necessarily complicated you know process uh and so we just needed like kind of a day to to get used to see what that was like uh, right. but we were able to shoot some pages of the first episode of the new season and monday we we, we go back real real hard <laughs> i i wasn't thinking about this until you started talking though it seems like that would also make production a lot more expensive yes Okay. All right. I'll just leave that right there. That yes, it was exhausting. Okay. It is. All right. Oh my god, it uh, is. It's so exhausting. It seems like it's got to be like its own nightmare of like, oh my god, what are we doing? Okay. So I want to really find out first of all what was like the first thought that eventually became bad hair. Where did this begin for you? It began as like a a one of those conversations where you're like maybe a little buzz and you're just sort of playing the what if game. Um, okay. Julie Lebdev, who financed and produced Dear White People, had just seen this movie called The Wig and she was talking to me and fellow producer Angel Lopez about it. Oh, 
we were just like joking about what that movie would even be in America. And that's all it was. It was just a joke. It was like, oh, my God, you know, this could be like, you know, one of those great like Gabrielle Union Beyonce movies about a killer weave. And like, you know, it was just kind of like, oh, my God, I want to see that movie. But, you know, it wasn't like, I'm. let's go make it. It was just sort of like, yeah. you know, it, it was just like, oh, God, I actually really kind of want to see that. But it was just kind of, that's all it was. And um, it just wouldn't leave me. I mean, this is how all of my movies start, really. This is how Dear White People started, too. It just, the thought of it would not leave me. And I realized that the reason why I wasn't taking it seriously is because I literally just had never thought that I could do horror. I, I just felt like... I didn't have permission to do that because all of the horror movies that I saw and loved, they just they 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 didn't reflect me in any way, shape or form. You know, I'm talking about everything, you know, that Hitchcock did through Brian De Palma, Polanski, um, you know, Stanley Kubrick, these amazing films. And I realized the thing that was holding me back from taking something like that seriously was like my own institutionalized thinking of like, you know, I remember this, I've said this a lot about Do the Right Thing when I saw Do the Right Thing and went, oh, oh, you can do that ensemble, artsy, just put the message in the thing kind of movie with black people. I remember like when that thought exploded Mm. in my head and Get Out hadn't come out yet. And, you know, I went to film school, but they didn't teach us about Ganja and Hess and Blackula. And, you know, they didn't tell us about uh, the legacy of black horror films. So it just never occurred to me. And then when I was like, oh, my God, it never occurred to me because of some bullshit. Then I was like, oh, well, now I got to do it. And (laughs) and, And a lot of stuff just began to sort of come to me in that time. Um, you know, one thing is that my my mother, you know, my dad died when I was a, a, when I was six years old. Uh, my mother raised me. She uh, was first in the family to get a doctorate degree, single woman, but like a career woman. And so her sisters would help raise me. My Aunt Zora and my Aunt Virgie and my Aunt Edna. And I realized so many aspects of my personality came from this like network of women. I started to think about some of the first movies I ever saw. And uh, Nightmare on Elm Street is one of the first movies I ever saw. My Aunt Zora showed it to me, oh babysitting me at a very young age. And, you know, I didn't even understand it was a horror movie. Like, But that imagery <laughs> kind of, you know, soaked into my, my subconscious. And in it, I have to think that one of the reasons why I want to be a filmmaker is because of those very early experiences. She loved um, horror movies and science fiction. Uh, uh, my, my godfather, her son, you know, would take me to comic book stores. And, and so that genre stuff, like, I, I guess I needed to remind myself that it was a part of my upbringing. Mm. Um, and, and so around that time, I was doing season three of Dear White People. I, uh, or I was planning on doing season three of Dear White People. Um, and I had, you know, at this point, I'm kind of skipping ahead just a little bit. At this yeah. point, I had developed the project. I decided it was going to be 1989. I, I decided sort of the tone of it. And I named a character Deontay in season three of Dear White People after a friend of mine that passed. And it was just a magical experience. And so, like, you know, where all of this early thinking that kept bringing me back, like, why am I thinking about my childhood and my mom and our aunts? Why don't I name the women in the film I had already named the lead Anna after my mother. Why don't I name all of the women in the film after, um, Mm. you know, my mother's uh, sisters who raised me, who had all passed at this point. And everything in the film just was imbued. It was imbued with ancestral energy. You can call me crazy, but like the coincidences increased. The those weird moments of synchronicity were popping all over the place. It was spooky. I, I want to get into that, but before we do that, because you you talked to me about like weird things happening on set, because I and I, I also skipped a lot of stuff, so my bad. <laughs> no, 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 because I I want to make sure that we get into the coincidences, the oh, weird yeah. like things that happen. But I something that you said has stuck with me that you didn't believe that you could do this until you did, and uh, you know this well enough. Like I'm screenwriting right now, and like I had told myself for a long time that like. I was a journalist and like we were in a, a group of friends, right? And like those, that group of the friends is actors. That group of the friends is writers. I'm like, you know what I mean? And I had told myself that I couldn't cross those boundaries. And then when I did, it was so par- paradigm changing for me to see like, oh, what other ways am I doing this to myself, telling myself that I can't do this? What was that process like for you of realizing that you could do something else? And where did, what else did it free up for you? 
I mean, I've often said that, like, I get angry right before I know I need to make something. And it was like that, too, because it wasn't even like, oh, I can never do that. I didn't even get to that thought. I never Mm -hmm. thought about doing it. And how crazy is that, that I love genre, I love horror movies, I'm talking about these movies all the time, and it it literally never occurred to me that I could do it. I'm a film, and I've known I wanted to be a filmmaker since I was a kid, like, that, you know, I get angry about stuff like that, and that's ultimately what the movie becomes about, too, over this process, is like, what are the things that are denied us because I am black and queer and because I am mm. born in a certain form? What are the things that are denied me that I don't even know about that are so above my head and outside of my understanding that like I'll never be able to calculate what would have been if it wasn't for the ways in which society was like, you know, holding me back or making it harder for me to do this or meet that person or have this kind of wealth in my family or, you know, name the endless things. Uh, I started to get angry about that, actually. And I realized like so many of those movies, um, even though they did not reflect me specifically, you know, the black people in, in these movies die early if they're in them at all. Um, or famously and unnecessarily like in The Shining, which I love, but like, why do we kill Scatman Crothers? No reason. Anyway, so, um, you know, I, I sort of, I began to realize, oh my God, there's a part of me that really needs to do this, that's been longing to do this, to, to sort of break out of the aesthetic of Dear White People, the stories we tell in Dear White People, um, but also kind of like let my freak flag fly. Because when you're doing a horror movie or a psycho thriller or something like this, like, it, you have to put your weird obsessions into it. Otherwise, the movie is just generic. Otherwise, like, why even give it a shot? Like, the reasons we love these those weird movies from the 70s is because they're so personal. They're so individual. And so if I'm going to make a movie that I can reasonably say belongs in this, you know, group of other movies that I love so much, well, then I have to give myself permission to put all my weird shit into it and my obsessions and, and, and follow the rabbit holes where they lead me. That's what led me to 1989 that's what led me to sort of using this analogy of the new jack swing movement and and placing anna in a world where she's trying to be a a music vj i mean these are things that are so specific to me but i knew that you have to do that in this genre or else it's just sort of like okay so you did a a horror movie with a black person in it like it has to be more than that um and and so it was very like it was enlightening it felt expansive it felt scary because i didn't know what movie was about to come out of that process. I didn't know how it was going to go. I didn't know when I was going to shoot it. I, you know, I started writing the movie before, you know, get out happened. And I knew and felt in my bones that like black horror is, should, should have been a major thing. But like dear white people, nobody else could really see it from a financial standpoint. And so, you know, I, I, it truly was an experiment. I did not know for sure that this could actually be a movie when I began it. Um, but then Get Out did happen and made a lot of money. And suddenly it made financially doing this movie uh, a very real possibility. Um, and by that time, I had already been rabbit holing into all kind of stuff that eventually would make its way, you know, into this film stuff like, you know, the the, the 80s advertising world, um, you know, uh, the, the fact that the weave sort of becomes ubiquitous in 1989 after a very specific cover that Janet Jackson did after a very specific music video that Janet Jackson did around the same time that Jody Wild, like I was in it. I was like, yeah. what was the month? What was the music video? What was the it came like, out on the fifteenth? Yeah, right? like, yeah, what was like, the VMA perform? Like what? Like I want. Like I want to put myself in that time period and have it dawn on me that I can have hair like this now. Like I, I really wanted to like put myself there. And uh, and and at that point, you know, the train had left the station. Uh, I think I might have been where I'm at in the story at this point. I'm probably in between season two and season three of Dear White People. Season three comes, it gets renewed, and I just feel like, you know what, I got to make my second movie now. I don't want to wait until after I shoot this season. I don't want to, I need, I need to, I need to break out of, you know, I love Dear White People, but I, 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 I'm a filmmaker, damn it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I need to tell new stories. And so I put myself into a scheduling nightmare. I really did. (laughs) You, you touched on this and I I think about this often actually. Do you ever think about the way that this time in 
the zeitgeist, if you will, is creating a path that did not exist before it. And I mean, thinking about black horror, thinking about the ways that we're now we're starting to see black horror movies popping up, right? Like there's more and more of them, but also like we're seeing more black shows. Like there's yourself and there's Issa and there's Doc, like there's, there's like this class, if you will, um, that is like really carving a lane that, that other folks are going to be coming up behind you. Do you think about that often? And if so, how so? I, I think about it often, but mostly really to, to not put too much into, I mean, first of all, there's a lot of incredible things happening in this moment in our generation. Um, and I don't want to devalue that. But I also, at the same time, some of it comes from the fact that we are not educated well about the mm. generation that came before us. You know, it really took me needing to make a black horror movie to realize that I'm not the first person to try to make a black horror movie. Mm -hmm. It didn't start with Get Out. It actually began, you know, in the silent film era. <laughs> and there's a, there's a long legacy there. And, um, you know, so yes, I think we are doing amazing things, but every generation has done things that are both known about, seen, unseen, buried, monumented, et cetera, um, that had to happen for us, you know, to get here uh, in ways that we don't even realize, you know. Absolutely. I, like I watch a movie like to, uh, to Sleep With Anger by Charles Burnett. Again, another movie I was not told to watch, a movie that was not advertised. Like it just never came up in my whole black cinema loving life. This is a movie that came, comes out in the early 90s and, and tries to deal with the conflict between like, you know, what was what would black people's sort of religious beliefs be if it wasn't for Christianity? And how does that clash? With, I mean, asking these really interesting questions, playing with genre, playing with tone. And I see him as a filmmaker running into the same problems that I ran into trying mm -hmm. to make, you know, black, trying to put black into what I understood psychological thrillers to be. And, and to see his solutions to those problems versus mine was like. I don't know. Like, I, I, so yes, I do think we're doing amazing things, but I, I also am just like, I'm in a very like the past is present kind of mindset. You know, I, I really, as much as it's cool to feel like we're the first to do this and we're the first to do that, like it can be very lonely and debilitating being the first and only. And, you know, sometimes like because black history is so fragile, tenuous, mm -hmm. not well documented, I've actually been taking refuge in the fact that like in this instance, like, there were many other people that that broke little pieces of the ground before I could walk here. And um, and so I've been that's just kind of where my mind has been. I would imagine that that's reassuring in some kind of way as well. Extremely. Like it's, it's scary, but like affirming in a it's, way. It's 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 maddening because I find out about movies and films that I, I, I should have heard about it and didn't. But it, it's it's incredibly gratifying to know that, like, wow, those times when I made something and the press didn't receive it the way I thought they would or it didn't get the attention I thought it deserved or it didn't do this or, you know, when I'm in that kind of place, you know, to think about the fact that there are directors like Charles Burnett, uh, 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 directors like uh, Charles Lane, um, you know, uh, Cheryl Dunier, uh other black filmmakers who have been breaking ground and being straight up geniuses for decades mm -hmm. without people putting proper respect on their names. It, it just, it gave me a whole new like perspective on my situation because I'm able to do so much because I have opportunities that people before me didn't have. It's not because I'm brilliant and, you know, because I work hard, you know, I, I do work hard. I do think I'm pretty smart. I think I'm kind of cute, you know, but also like I'm lucky. I'm really fucking lucky. Mm. So talk to me about the process of writing this film. Um, we see like all of the influences that, you know, kind of folded their way into you and into the film. Talk to me about writing it. Like what, what was that process like? Because it seems like you did a good amount of research. I did a lot of research um, uh, because especially once I sort of realized that 1989 was sort of calling me. This was, I think, maybe this was my first attempt as a writer to sort of write not just with my head, but with my heart, too. Um, I tend to, you know, especially with Dear White People, it's an intellectual show. It's a comedy. You're supposed to think about it and then giggle or be mad or whatever. This is a, a movie that you have to feel like you have to care about this woman. You have to go on this emotional journey. You have to be scared when she's scared. Um, I had to learn to write with a different part of myself. And, you know, it was funny because a lot of my old screenwriting books that I would go to, my Save the Cats, my, you know, Sid Field screenwriting, my all that stuff, it was just failing me. I, I was using all those methods to put together these like, you know, airtight outlines and do it the way, you know, it just wasn't working. And so I had to throw a little bit of that away. 
and just immerse myself in the genre, watch everything that I could, whether or not it was good, whether or not I, I had heard about it, whether or not it seemed, you know, just to really try to hone in on what is it I'm doing here? What are the rules of horror? Uh, stay, stay, stay there for a second. Yeah. What made you realize it wasn't working and how did you get out of it? I just wasn't satisfied with it. Okay. It wasn't, you know, it was it wasn't working for me. I, I hadn't even really gotten to the place of showing it to people. I just like I knew that I, you know, I, I didn't. There was a couple things that I, I was afraid of. I didn't want it to be uh, a gay man's movie about a woman. You know, it mm. is very much that. But I didn't want it to. I didn't want her or the women to feel just like you know voice boxes for me. One of the amazing things about dear white people is that I have a writer's room and I get to populate that writer's room with people who have the actual lived experiences of my characters. Uh, you know, with bad hair, I'm writing a woman. That frightened me because even though I've always written for women and I feel like queer men, queer black men especially, have a special connection to uh, black women and writing for black women, I just was really, I was, I was just really, you know, wanting to get it right and not fuck it up or not miss things or not have things in my blind spots. One of the first things I did is I invited, um, I asked a bunch of just black women in my life, a few men too, uh, writers, uh, mostly writers and directors, uh, to come meet me in Palm Springs. And I paid for like this, you know, kind of getaway for everybody to just hang out in this Airbnb. And we watched horror movies and we talked and I laid it all out there. I laid the concept out there. I said, like, this is what I want to do. First, I just want to know, like, as a, as a, as, I know you're not representing everybody, but in this small group, like, do I have permission to say this shit? Like, can, can I make right. this movie? You know, and, and I just sort of asked a lot of questions and I really wanted to know, like, you know, this is because with a horror movie, especially like there's the concept, but that's like, that's only one. That's like, not, it's, it's an important part of the movie. It's like why you start watching the movie. But the thing that makes a horror movie work is like, what is the movie about though? Like, what is it actually like saying? Like what deep fears is it drawing upon? And um, I wanted that to be very female. I didn't want that to feel like, you know, oh, she wants to look good. I, did, I didn't want it to be like an imitation <laughs> of a woman, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, the thing that came out of that conversation uh, is this feeling, and this is from, you know, up-and-coming directors, writers, uh, actors, some of whom are, are successful at this point, some are on their way to stardom at this point, some are still trying to break through. From the whole spectrum of that, you know, I kept hearing the sense that, like, God, in order to be successful, I just feel like I can't bring as much of myself with me. I feel like I always, at the end of the day, I fundamentally have to choose between who I am and what I want to achieve. Like, those things are always in tension for me as a black woman. That's, the, that's what I kept hearing over and over again and this is and, I, and of course, I heard all the hair stories about, you know, you know, trying to straighten your hair and your first chemical burn and your first weave. And when you decide to, you know, have no weaves ever and when you decide only weaves, when you said, you know, we had all of those conversations. But I wanted to get at, like, what frightened them about being a black woman in this world. And, and when we got to that, that's when I was like, OK, that's what the movie is about. I can't fault you for doing whatever it takes to get where they keep trying to keep us from getting in a perfect world, a woman would be able to wear her hair the way she wants to. It's about mm. the fact that, like, this woman is the best person for this job. This is her destiny. This is in her blood. But because of who she is and how she looks, she's not really given a lot of options to get there. She's given a very tenuous map. It's almost like she, you know, it has these predators that are kind of like luring her into traps. When my brain started to go into that direction, that's when I landed on on really this version of Bad Hair. Because I, I didn't want to make a movie that asked the... Because, you know, the other thing about a horror movie, there's always a sin that the character is atoning for. You know, that, that joke where they say, like, you know, in horror movies, uh, oh, oh, as soon as you have sex, you die. Well, that's because, you know, the writers decided consciously or unconsciously, well, the sin is going to be, you know, sex. So it, they're always, there's always... It's really about overcoming some flaw. And I didn't mm. want to be the flaw to be vanity because it's not... I didn't want to put that on black women or on this black woman. Like, like it's not about you know, is it okay or not okay to have straight hair or curl? It's not, I didn't want to make a moral play about that. I wanted to interrogate the system that tells this woman, if you don't do this, then you are invisible to this society. I wanted to interrogate that system, not that woman's choice, because it really wasn't a choice. Um, and that's when the movie that 
I eventually made started to to kind of happen and and find its way, you know, to dialogue and characters and and scripts. And I did a lot of research about horror writing period, not script writing, just the tenets of horror. I wanted to get really familiar with that because I wanted it to be, you know, spooky, scary on the page, um, which is really difficult to do, uh, Mm -hmm. to be scary on the page because horror is based in like sound design and sight gags. Um, So I just became a student and and I just kept working at it. How long of a process was writing it? So I first started talking about it in 2015. That was I, I went and found my first email about it, and I sent a I sent an outline around 2015. So we started shooting it in 2018. I can't do math, but what's that? Three about four two years? and a half, three years. Yeah, about three years. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. and I and you... I tend to even when, when even when as the project moves along, I tend to, I'm always rewriting. So I'm including you know rewriting even after we were talking about casting and all that kind of stuff. You know, I was just constantly tweaking. That's it. I, I I do want to talk to you about casting uh, in a second, but I've interviewed you before multiple times now, obviously over the years of knowing you. Um, and I've heard you say this multiple times that you didn't want to moralize something. You didn't want to put a moral about this is right or this is wrong. And I feel like that is a consistent theme for you that I've I've probably heard you say that three, four or five times in interviews now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Talk to me about what that means for you. I think it's about the realization that often if something is simple, it's probably not true. I've just I've, mm. I've just I've run into that a million times in my life and that um, just because we we want and desperately need the world to be clear and easy to follow doesn't mean that it is. And so I just I get very leery of a movie telling me that this is right and that is wrong um, or a story sort of, you know, the purpose of the story is to teach us that always follow your heart or always listen to your head or always uh, always because these things sort of like trap us in ways that we can't even see, you know, one of the one of the things I think, honestly, that's really sad about our generation and the generations coming up. None of us freaking know what a loving relationship really is. We have hmm. romantic comedies and that's kind of it. And when our relationships don't look like that, how many people fall apart and get divorced and break up? But the truth is, is that our parents generation before that, when it was like, you're cool, let's get married. They know things about relationships that we'll never learn because we're stuck in the stories that we tell ourselves. And so I never want to tell stories that are like, you know, this is it. That's it. Bye. I just Mm -hmm. I just don't think that that's that's not why I go to stories. That's not what I go to to experience from a story. Um, And uh, and I don't think I have the right to judge my characters. I don't even the ones that are are antagonistic in the films or, or the shows like I don't I don't ever I don't ever feel like I have the right to say they're a hundred percent this or they're a hundred percent that because nothing in life that I know to be true that I've experienced as truth is that simple. It's, it's usually quite complicated. Interesting. Um, I don't feel like I have a right to judge my characters. I, I, I'm that's sticking with me as well. That I, I love that. that I don't, that, I, if I'm telling the truth about them, how can I judge them? You know, it's I'm their God in a way like I'm making them, I'm creating them. And and the truth is they're parts of me. That's the truth. Mm. That is the secret truth that every it's true for every writer, whether they're doing it on purpose, whether it stays unconscious to them their entire lives. You are always writing yourself or better to say yourselves, the parts of yourselves that ordinarily don't get to speak or be a part of conversations or be a part of life decisions, they come out in your scripts. And judging them doesn't help them come out. It doesn't help them flourish. It doesn't help them tell you the truth. And so how can I tell the truth about them? You know, if even even a character like Kurt, uh, you know, um, you've seen that character evolve from the film Dear White People through the TV series. And the reason that evolution is possible is because I don't judge even him uh, mm-hmm. with his shortcomings. And now we can actually have a conversation about humanity. We can have a conversation about real shit if we don't pretend that people are either good or bad. Now we right. can really talk about what you and I feel every day when we live our lives, which is that it's gray and it's complicated. And I actually don't know what to do in this moment or what to say. Yeah, That's what yeah. life has always felt like to me. So uh, 
you you touched on what was going to be the next question. You talked about how all of these characters that you create somehow are a part of you and how you wanted to write this story about not being able to come fully as herself to work. What experience have you had with not feeling like you could really come to work as yourself that that really influenced how you look at that? Well, the the first thing that I thought was really interesting about it, I mean, I think everybody black is certainly right now is, is, is very aware of it, but you don't realize it at first. Mm-hmm. That was the, that's the most unsettling part of it. The ways in which I've changed the way I talk or dress or walk or the voice that I use or the hair that I have or the clothes that I wear. I I wasn't even conscious of how much of those were decisions based on what I thought would be acceptable. Um, And so, like, at a certain point, you, you begin to live your life. And even through success, you know, in my late 20s, my early 30s, when I'm making my big break with Dear White People, I, I'm not feeling really comfortable in it. And why is that? Oh, my God, it's because I'm... I'm like playing a person that I've been crafting really subtly over time, but she's not me. He's not me. He's like, (laughs) he's like a sliver of me. I I had like a, a, something that came to me in a therapy session where it's like, sometimes I feel like a person shaped corset. I'm in here, but it's like just the parts of me that are allowed. And it's, it's an unconscious process. So like becoming conscious of that is the first step and that is a very scary thing because then you've got to deal with things like okay do i even like these people do i like doing this or do i just do it to get promoted do i really care about that job do i do i need to quit that job do i need to ask for more money do i need to do that you know it, it brings up a lot of very uncomfortable questions that one has to work through but on the other side of that is a better chance at getting to be yourself in the world and um you know it's a it's a worthwhile journey, but particularly for black folks and particularly for black women, if you start adding things to it, you know, uh, if you're gender non-binary or like you add to the list, honey, you yes. know, it, you have fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer and more whittled and precarious opportunities to actually like make that journey and have it be mm. successful and have it work for you. Um, and that's a tragedy that is not ever really addressed anywhere. And um, I, I don't know, like I, I was, <laughs> it was probably because of Dear White People, but I, I just remember like it, I, I watch old jazz documentaries and I, I, I you know, when I, whenever I discover like some black artist that was a genius and did something amazing and nobody knew about it, you know, for like decades until after they died or something like I, it just makes me so grateful that I have an opportunity and so aware that like so many people who are much more brilliant than I am never even got the shot for their name to be known or, or to do something. And I, I don't know. I think all of those feelings were just really in my heart uh, when I when I was when I was writing this. Mm. I, I, I love that. Um, I want to talk about casting. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, when I tell you, you couldn't find a single name in this movie. Uh, <laughs> I know. It is. I know. Who are these people? <laughs> <laughs> I, I came to set and like... But was like Willie whole... M's? Who is she? I, what no, is... but Justin, like I was sitting in video. Like I had done some research, but like I didn't want to like do too much reading before I came to set. Like I wanted to just experience it. And so I was sitting in Video Village and like there's a scene going on and a woman in a robe just comes in and she's like just talking. And I look and I'm like, that is Vanessa Williams. Full on. That's the real her. <laughs> exactly, right. Right. And like in the film, she has like this long black hair. So she has a wig cap on or whatever. Like, oh, yeah. Like between... So cool and transparent about all that. <laughs> Justin, when I tell you, I was so shook seeing Vanessa Williams in a wig cap. But I was just like, you have Vanessa Williams and Kelly Rowland. Like, you have so many people in this film. Let's talk about casting. And how did you how did you envision this casting? And then how did it come to life? Well, um, I, I, I felt like Anna, it all kind of depended on who we found for Anna. I felt like Anna could either be a discovery. It could be, um, you know, a person who we know really well. And depending on who, on which way we go there, we could kind of populate um, around mm. her a variety okay. of character actors, known people, cameos, you know, stars, uh, new, you know, people you've never seen before. You know, because I, I love those kind of casts when it's 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 a mix. It really is a mix of people who you're, you're kind of bringing an expectation to, people that you're meeting for the first time as an audience. 
moments. Um, I worked with a casting director I hadn't worked with before named Carmen Cuba uh, as well, who shared that kind of vision for it. So the first step was to find Anna. And, um, you know, one of the coincidences I'll I'll get to very shortly, um, we had a we had a few people coming in for Anna. Everyone was really, really great. Uh, There were some stars that came through, um, you know, some people that just on paper had the producers and myself very, very excited. And they all did a great job. And before before we were done with it, though, I wanted to see one other person. Her name is Elle Lorraine. Elle and I went to high school together, actually. Um, she is, she was a freshman, I think, when I was a senior uh, performing in visual arts high school in Houston. And she was also in, you know, one of my first college short films. And uh, I hadn't seen her act in a while. And, and we, we had sort of, we were very close and kind of lost touch. And we're getting back in touch. And, um, you know, she was, I, I, I had had her come do like a, like a very small part on Dear White People season two. I thought she did a great job on. And so I just wanted to see her read it and um i just got chills immediately i got that feeling i just it was like oh oh god this is her oh my god this is her this is her this is her and it wasn't even like a it wasn't even like an intellectual conversation it was like a feeling it was like a spirit feeling and like i was saying this movie for me was such a lesson and like how do i incorporate that other part of me into my process um I'm driving on the street and I'm, I'm call, I called Angel, uh, one of the producers, and we're just talking about it. We're like, oh, my God, I know, like, so-and-so was so good and, like, uh, that would really help us, like, financially and maybe we could do pre-sales. But, God, like, wasn't L amazing? And as we're talking, I pass a street sign that says Lorraine Boulevard. I'd never seen it before. Her name is L Lorraine. Nice. Uh, as we're talking about her. One of many, but, like, if that's the only thing that happened, I'd be like, girl, calm down. This was, like, just one of, like, <laughs> daily occurrences. And I was like, okay, so let's pay it close attention to Elle. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, once people saw her tape, I mean, it was just like, yeah, that's okay. Yep, that's her. And, and it was so cool, like, you know, reuniting with this person who we have this shared experience of growing up black in Houston, but at this performing arts high school and seeing her. I mean, she really, and she fucking, she just killed it. Like, not just as a performer. Like, I think her performance in the movie speaks for itself. I think it's just you know, it's the best part of the movie, I think, but also like her just on set, you know, she, she was having to crawl around, you know, be surrounded by like fake hair all day, hot, (laughs) screaming, crying, running, flailing, and just the most lovely person to be around. I mean, you were there. Like she made, I was going to say she was a delight to be around. Right. Like makes everyone feel so happy and laugh. And I mean, I just remember she would do these scenes. She was just like murder somebody covered in blood, tears streaming down her face. Cut. Hey, Jess, Jess, was that good? I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> Bye, Brian. Bye, la, la, la. You know, just like so happy to be there. It's funny, whenever I, whenever I think of Elle, I always see a smile on her face. Like yeah. she always has this like a very, a, a really uh, warm, inviting kind of energy and you, you really want to be around her. Um, so, so then, so the, okay. The whole casting process was like that. It was head, heart. It was like, this person makes sense. Let's talk. And then how do we feel? While we're having mm-hmm. the conversation, how do I feel afterwards? How do you know who is going with me? Not just on the road of this movie, but on the mission of the movie too. Um, and that's how we landed to this amazing cast. Yeah, yeah. So then uh, everyone else kind of started falling in, right? Like James Vanderbeek is in this movie. Um, like I, Usher is in this movie. Um, I love that you use Kelly Rowland as kind of the pop star of that, that like when she comes on screen, I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Like I was so excited. Talk to me about that. Yes. Also from Houston. Um, You know, so yeah, so the James, I mean, Carmen just has these like, amazing like wacky ideas not when I, I don't say wacky in a disparaging way but in a like oh you know like there's are completely unexpected unexpected yeah. but like that makes a lot of sense and so like you know she brings that flavor um uh there's there's a certain you know orbit of people who we've been kind of like oh maybe we should work together you know and so like it was it was really this cool collaboration what was the question you asked right before that i was like interrupting you to say something and then forgot what you said no no we're talking about casting like then all of these other folks started to kind of fall into the cast yeah 
Right, right. Um, so yeah, that, that was kind of like, you know, a, a similar process. And, and there were people like Lena who had been, you know, a part of it since we were writing it. There were people like Yanni, who was actually in the concept trailer for Dear White People, who I've been dying to work with ever since. She played Coco in the original, original, original concept trailer. Um, and people like DeHaley Hall, who, uh, you know, was writing for, who, she plays Dorica on, uh, on Dear White People. I'm just obsessed with her. I've been obsessed with her for years. <laughs> I'm always just trying to put people I'm obsessed with in my thing. So, you know. Okay. So then you make this movie and uh, you ultimately go to Sundance. Yes. And I know that Sundance has been a, 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 a difficult mixed experience for you over the years why would you say what i i had just read that one time i say Um, i know i bitch too much in these (laughs) but it's just i just can't help i don't think so people don't know but let me tell you what i think is great about that though because i think that there is this um there is this idea that people with any level of visibility kind of go into those spaces and it is just privilege and like, you know what I mean? It is just like, well, he has a TV show. So like, it'll be a breeze. Like, but that's not always the the situation, right? Just because you're a visible person doesn't mean that you go into those spaces and just have the, the pick of the litter. It's like, it's, it's still a challenge. It's still a job. Right. Um, and so talk to me about what the Sundance experience uh, was like for you. I mean, Sundance is like really traumatizing. And part of why it's traumatizing is because everyone thinks it's has this idea of what it's going to be and is assuming that all of the other filmmakers are having that version of it. And none of us are, you know. And mm. so I think maybe that's too why I bitch about it. Just so you know, like it, it's not supposed to be easy. Like you're literally going to it's like going to market or going, you know, yeah. like, like in those old in those old like, you know, old tiny movies or things or like a I, I, slave auction is kind of how I, I see it more so. But you really are like, OK, I'm both like. You know, do first of all, movie making is so weird and such a mindfuck. You're making this incredibly tender, personal, fragile, artistic dream. <laughs> and then you're like giving it over to the masses who are like, fuck you, or I like it, or what is this, or it made a money. It, like, it's just like, it just, it's chaos once you try and sell it. it. Suddenly, this thing that's this beautiful artistic process, like, I want, I'll give you five dollars for it, I'll give you six. Like, it, it just, it just becomes this whole other, it's like Jesus going into the temple in some marketplace or something. Like, it feels, <laughs> it's very chaotic. And so, like, I'm both, like, showing the movie and, like, for the first time, really getting to see what are people going to project onto this movie? How are they going to take it in? How are they going to view the ending, the length? How are they going to view this tone combination that I'm doing? It's my first time, you know, I, we had, had tests for the movie, but it's my first time, like, really just, like, here it is, guys. White, black, yeah. woman, man, here it is. And uh, and so that's just a very vulnerable space to be in. But then at the same time, you're also, like, having a very different conversation, which is not really so much about, like, how are audiences and critics feeling about the movie, but, like, what's it, how can we sell it? What's mm-hmm. it worth to us? And, and, and the crush of those two realities is traumatizing. I don't care who you are. And I've spoken to people, frankly, who, you know, come out of Sundance with these gigantic deals, okay? You know, I, I mean, people who just became millionaires overnight, and they're just as traumatized as those mm. of us that left the festival without a deal, which was me my first year with Dear White People. We left that festival without a deal. When I came back to Sundance this year, somebody in the IndieWire uh, journalist room was like, how does it feel as a darling of Sundance to come back? And I'm like, I was a darling? I don't remember <laughs> it like that. Because I remember leaving being like, we didn't sell the boot. I remember being depressed. Uh, but having to be really happy in interviews because, well, if I look like an asshole, well, who's going to want to buy my movie now? And so, you know, um, it, we, we were fortunate enough to find not only a, a home for the movie while we were there. It was a great deal. And, and they really got the movie, loved the movie, um, all of that. So, you know, that was nice. But at the same time, I'm also I'm, I'm internalizing and I'm integrating responses to the movie that I didn't expect, if I'm being completely honest. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's always I'm always a person who doesn't really hear the compliments. And I'm saying this because I need to say this for myself. There were some good reviews that came out of Sundance. There were some raves by very notable people. Um, there were the there were heads of other film festivals that ended up not happening because of COVID saying it was their favorite film 
at Sundance. I mean, I, it, I had a lot of nice conversations. I also had a lot of really tough conversations. People who didn't care for it at all, didn't have any feeling one way or the other. People who um, were angry, angered by the movie uh, and, and yet weren't quite able to articulate what that was. You know, it pushed a button and not everybody knew how to sort of respond. There was also, you know, the fact that Sundance is kind of a cluster. A lot of people got locked out of our premiere. A lot of prominent black people that came to Sundance just to see the movie didn't get to, it had tickets, couldn't see it. it there was a, a, a lot of other things happening um, that, you know, had nothing to do with the movie that were just like very, I don't know. They, they just held my attention at that time. And I, and I came back very depressed and wounded and beat up and nobody understood why. They're like, yeah, you sold your movie for a bunch of money. Mm. I was like, yeah, but what's the point? I mean, I was really in a, I was kind of in a dark place. I think the thing that like freaked me out and I'll, I'll just, I will always be honest on my show, but I'll just be honest always is that there were some black women who saw the film and were upset with me. And I didn't know what to, I didn't know what to, I just didn't know what to do with that information. It, it was, it, it actually was incredibly valuable, but at the time I didn't quite know what it was for or how to process that information. You and I have discussed this and I thought it was a really uh, important point and part of why I wanted to talk to you about this because I think that oftentimes we create something for an audience that we want to love it. Um, I obviously host a pod and we want we want X audience to really embrace it and you hope that they do. And then like there's always like some other unexpected part of that that you're like, oh, wow, this is also really tracking with X. Um, and then sometimes you get negative feedback and you're like, oh, Okay. And I know for you that you made this thinking about black women having done a retreat and really wanting to like really embrace black women. So then for there to be some feedback, not all the feedback, but for there to be some feedback from black women, I know that was really painful for you. Yeah, um, it, it how did you process that and what did you do with it? Well, like I said, it, it was very, it was confusing because on one end of it, I thought that I was trying to be such a good listener and such a good ally and all this stuff. And somehow I, I felt like I had just missed something. So that just I just felt like I wasn't good. You know, I, I just didn't feel like good enough, you know, in that moment. And I also realized, like, you know, black women are perhaps on a pedestal for me as a gay black man. It's like they're kind of all I have ever had, you know, and mm. my mother is the most important person in my life. And like, you know, all of my producers, you know, with the exception of Julie, I got to say, I love Julie. But we always I always got a quorum of black women also on the producing team or in the writer's room or whatever. I, I really like, you know, um, there's a symbiotic relationship, I think, between most queer men and, and, and black women as a concept. Um, and I think I think there was two things that I I needed to learn uh, in that moment. One is how do I know when I'm done and how do I know when I've done a good job? I'm, I'm smart enough to know that you can't just like look at your Rotten Tomatoes score or read a bunch of reviews. And on either side, whether you are, you know, praised or panned. You can't just look at that as the indicator of whether or not you accomplish something, because we all know about movies that had terrible reviews and we all know about that were actually really good. And we all know about movies that were actually really terrible and they had amazing, you, you know, unanimously amazing reviews. We, mm -hmm. we know that it's BS, but when it's your movie, it feels like a grade. I mean, it feels like you're not going to pass the class if, if, you know, you don't if your tomato isn't ripe, damn it. And isn't like extremely like 90 percent or more ripe. Uh, right. And and it's it's. I had so one like what who like how do I just how do I process any feedback as an artist like how do I know when I'm done the other thing I learned is like I don't I don't need to be on Twitter girl I don't need to be on her <laughs> I don't know why I keep trying to give it a go I really don't because I didn't see that coming just now <laughs> yeah I mean that was a lesson for me I'm not saying yes. it's a lesson for because look there's a lot of people on Twitter and like when I see like you know Ava DuVernay said this and dragged this person and and you know Issa said that and, and you said this and all that I'm <laughs> jealous because I'm like oh my god that's such a good tweet I wish I was there when they said it but I can't be on that platform okay I can't do I it I hear you I hear um, you so that was those were two things that I learned <laughs> okay and, uh, okay and 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 um and also you know it'd be began a process for me of really like because I here's the ultimate tea we sold the movie but something in my soul told me I wasn't done 
You told me mm. it wasn't done and I wasn't done. And as annoying as that thought was, because it meant more work and it meant more feedback and it meant more, uh, you know, will, will Hulu let me change anything at this point? Are they going to think it's because I'm scared or whatever? You know, how do I decide when I'm done? You know, like I, it, it is clear that like, you know, people's negative feedback, whether right or wrong, has an impact on me that's like bigger than it probably should be. Um, and it's crippling and it's making me wonder like why I even do it. But I also know I'm born for this shit. And so I got to get through it and I got to figure out how to process this. I got to figure out how to do it. And it, I had to forge a way to internally know when I've finished something. That was a big lesson. And it's not a lesson you can be taught or be or read about because it's personal. You know, um, I had to like really get in touch with like, OK, not who did I make the movie for just in general, but like who like who are the two or three people um i got a new therapist at that time um who had you know he is a, a gay man who's had the benefit of being um a prominent author at one point and so he's been kind of through some of these things um I, I had a very bad experience with a therapist right before him so that was also a very touch and go relationship at the beginning but the truth is is that like I was able to kind of work, especially when everything shut down and we were in quarantine, while the world was freaking out, I was secretly like, <laughs> you know, because we were starting to shoot, we were starting to write Dear White People Season 4, I was in an office, it was like, you know, it gave me time to just chill and really work mm. out a system. Like, okay, how do I watch my, my work and not hate everything about it? or gas myself up and think it's perfect. Because those are the two modes that I think most artists know how to watch their shit in, that I knew how to work. How do I watch it in the middle? How do I really interrogate it as an artist, give myself a break when I know that I did the best I could do there, keep going when I know I could do a little bit better? I, I had time and space and an appetite for the difficulty of really walking through that process nice and slow. And what I realized is that, like, yes, I have an amazing reverence for black women, but I also have a bit of a mother complex. And I also mm. have a bit of a, a taskmaster, taskmaster, disciplinarian, um, you know, it's never good enough. There's a there's a voice in my head um, that isn't this woman who gave me the feedback in Sundance. And it isn't, you know, that article. It's actually something that lives in me that like would have been there if it was all raves. And I remember, and I know this to be true because with Dear White People, you know, even though that was a tough movie and not everybody knew how they felt about it, you know, I, you know, I got some glowing reviews for that movie and I remember reading that and still feeling like I didn't nail it or still feel it. Mm. And so like just that, that person is with me no matter what happens on the outside world. So it's not up to what happens in the outside world to do something about that voice. I really got in touch with that voice over this quarantine process and over the process of going with through the, through the edit with a fine toothed comb. And I realized that I had made a decision about the movie that was rooted in my ego and that was rooted in my intellect and what I thought it should be and not what this other part of me was trying to make the movie for. And that's, uh, you know, you'll probably hear me talking a lot about it in press and, you know, we're, 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 there's stuff going on with Hulu. We're, we're going to show the original uh, film that we, we you know, showed in Sundance alongside, you know. So I'm, a, I'm not going to say too much about that specifically, except to say that the reason I landed on this cut of the movie it wasn't because, you know, someone hurt my feelings. It was because, like, I was able to work through those hurt feelings to listen to a part of me that was there that had a note <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> that was not being heard. And that, you know, I feel like whether people love it or hate it, this version of the movie reflects my intention, not just, you know how I want people to see me as a filmmaker or what I think is good or, or what I think is tasteful or cool or, you know, what I think it, fuck my mind. Like there, there's a, I wanted this movie to feel a certain way and, uh, and achieve a certain intention. And I had to go through that fire to find that because nobody, nobody was giving it to me in the feedback. It wasn't in the, in the notes. Like what I did specifically, it wasn't laid out for me. Nobody said, do this, do that. People were happy with the movie. The people who weren't happy with the movie didn't buy it, so fuck them. You know, like, I, <laughs> there was no forces that were telling me which way to go. It was a very personal kind of painstaking process, but one that, like, God, I'm so grateful to because now I'll never do it another way. Um, now, 
Were you saying that there are going to be two different films out? out you're, so, you're going to put out two cuts? So there's going to be, um, specifically, I'm going to put out, I may put out full, the full Sundance cut someday, but there's a different ending. The movie ends differently uh, in Sundance than it than it does now. And there's a bunch of other changes to the film. But that's like the one that I think if you saw the film before in Sundance, you'll probably notice that the ending is different. Um, and so but we're also going to put out that original ending. And um, I had a conversation with uh, a couple of the actors in the film who were part of that ending. And we had a real we just had a sit down like a little featurette will come out with it where we discuss like, why did I change the ending? You know what? You know, is it OK? for black movies to end tragically or for the characters to survive or like you know this is a conversation that comes up a lot with our movies Mm -hmm. um and so we had like just a very real conversation about like what do you what do you prefer as an actor as an audience member how do you feel about the ending we shot and you know we're kind of going to give it to the audience like what ending do you like the most this is justin's cut of the movie that'll be the official thing that you'll see uh but then but i am really proud of this ending too just as a filmmaker so i wanted I like to show that. it and uh and get actual not feedback in like did i do a good job kind of feed but like i really want to see the discussion like you got both now so like let's talk i love that i love the the being able to kind of see like two different perspectives on one film uh that's exciting that's really exciting um Lastly, well, sort of lastly, um, we are, <laughs> one of the things you talked about earlier was that you wanted to do this film and you had to think about what it was going to say about black women or what it might say about gay men talking about black women. And I feel like this is one of the unique things uh, about being a marginalized group, right? Uh, being black, being queer, being black and queer. Um, and on our show, the show that I host, uh, Fanti, whenever we have on someone that's like representative of a group, we always reiterate, like, this person is here to give their experience of being, you know, X. They don't represent all of those people. Um, as a person who created Dear White People and has really been at the forefront of creating a lot of these conversations online, how do you look at representation um, when you're doing television or when you're doing a film or when you're doing future projects? What is the value or the importance or do you even think about it? How, how do you uh, handle that in your mind? Um, a lot of white artists and a lot of artists, frankly, you know, the ideal and the, and the, and the, the dream really is to just put it out pure from you, from your point of view, and let the world do what they will. But with film, it, you just can't do that as easily because like, it costs a lot of money to make films. Not videos, by the way. I think you can be making cinema on your iPhone. But if you want to you know, amass a large audience, start a conversation, you don't just want to make art. You also want, you want an opening night, honey, that's packed mm-hmm. with a standing O. You know, I'm that kind of I'm a performer artist, too. I want I want to engage with the crowd in some way. It's like my I'm an introvert, you know, in the streets, but uh, in the sheets. I don't know where that's going. But I'm making stuff like I want to connect with an audience. (laughs) And so I and so I do feel like I have a responsibility to think through, like, what are people going to probably bring to this and and what you know, what's going on in the world today? And and is this going to be a positive part of what's going? I do. I feel an obligation to think a few steps ahead, depending on what it is. You know, mm. with Dear White People, I, I only did that to a certain point because I knew for my first film, it was more important that I be like really true to myself and really just like, this is me, this is my calling card, get at me if you want to, don't if you don't. I knew that I had to have that energy in my first project. My second project, Bad Hair, um, I, I, you know, I, I wanted, and, and, and every season with Dear White People is a little bit different, um, but that was like a little bit of a, a tighter thing to fine tune because like, I do feel like, um, you know, horror noir or black horror is in a very early, almost precarious stage, infant stage. And um, I, I wanted there to be a certain experience and rhythm to the movie, along with needing to express certain aspects of life that I wanted to say in an artistic way. It was both of those things for me. So I had to find that balance and everything is different and everything will be different, I think, yeah. uh, for me. All right. Um, actually, lastly, uh, this film is coming out. Um, and everyone's going to be able to see it. You are, while everyone's watching it, you are in the beginning process of the final season of Dear White People. Um, I I hate to ask, like, what do you want to do next? Because it's like, 
Jesus Christ, can I do this? Girl, can um, I can I take can I take a nap? <laughs> right. And so I, I hate to ask the question, but I also recognize you're doing the final season of Dear White People. You guys are, are doing one last season. How do you look how do you, are you even looking forward yet? Like, okay, well, this is about to be done, right? I'm about to we're starting to shoot the last season. How do you orient yourself uh personally about like where you are in, in your life and your career and your work? I have no idea how to do one thing. I always tell people, do one thing at a time. Mm. Multitasking is a myth. Finish one thing and do the... I'm always telling... I can't help it. I have like 89 things in development right now. Yeah. Um, I have plenty of stuff that could go next. That's, you know, that's the case for me. I, I just stay busy and I, and I keep a lot of plates spinning. Um, I'm not the busiest or the hardest working person in show business by any means because I also really like weed and sleeping and, and you know, <laughs> days off. Like, I really do. Like, I love finishing a production day early. Like, I am not that kid that needs to be there all night working on the science project. You know, I have that energy, but I'm from Houston, so I'm also laid back. Oh, so no that's the, first of all, that's the secret. That's why we're all amazing. <laughs> um, second of all, uh, you know, but I do have a lot of stuff in development, things that I've written that, you know, my, I might get a shot to, to finally do things that, you know, existing IP that I think could be a really interesting thing for me to be involved in. Small things, big things, little things, red things, blue things. Okay. Because I, I never know what's really going to happen. Yeah. You know, so I just I'm always taking on too much. And it's probably why Aaliyah is so exhausted. Well, there we go. I think that is a I think that's a great way for us to wrap it up. Um, Justin, congratulations on this film. I know that this has been a a labor of love and it has been a lot of different things for you. But uh, I'm really excited for people to get to see the film. And uh, I'm really proud of you. And thank you so much for interviewing me. Of course. Of course. I'm happy to do it. Well, I certainly feel exposed. I hope that was good for you, because it was it was good for me. Big special thanks to Jared Hill for guest hosting today. Uh, thank you goes out to Jason Smith, our Starburns audio producer, Jessica Gutierrez, our audio engineer, and Judith Cargbo, our production coordinator. Uh, big shout out to Chris Bowers, who did the theme song, and to Dominique German Makazo, who did additional music. This episode was produced by Aliyah Jihad for Culture Machine. Now listen, I actually do want you to at me. You know I love a good misleading title. So check us out on Instagram, Culture Machine Co. You can also check me out at at Justin underscore Simeon, S-I-M-I-E-N. And of course, at Bad Hair Film, honey, because it's coming or it's here, depending on when you're listening. Uh, And we got a lot to say and talk about for that movie. So I'll see you all online. Starbands Audio, a podcast, <clears throat> a podcast network.